You're listening to Dairy Voice, a podcast exclusively for the dairy industry. Before we get started today, I'd like to ask our dairy farming audience to take a few moments to go online to dairybusiness.com protein and complete this survey. We are conducting this survey related to feed rations. Specifically, we'd like to know more about the protein ingredients that you and other producers commonly use. So if you are a dairy farm owner or employee and take a few minutes to complete this survey for us, we will send you a $10 gift code from Uttertech to use as you wish. We're delighted to have with us today a ninth generation dairy producer from Western New York. Natasha Stein Sutherland is a partner with her father, brother, and cousin in her family's Stein Farms near Leroy, New York, south of Rochester. Natasha is herd manager here, but is also involved in dairy promotion and neighbor relations in a big way, too. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this conversation, Natasha, because our mutual friend Janice Barrett was very enthusiastic in recommending you as a guest on, on Dairy Voice. And I take Janice's recommendations very seriously. That was incredibly kind of Janice to recommend me, and I thanked her immediately. I just I was kind of blown away a little bit, to be honest, now that we're, I don't know, maybe old enough to be recognized as someone interesting to listen to. I don't feel that old. How's that? I still think I'm a kid. I, I would say I know the feeling, but uh, I do know the feeling, even though I'm way more than a kid. I was also got a kick out of the fact that when we were getting acquainted uh, initially, uh, you mentioned that you uh, went to school, went to Cornell with Brett Barless, uh, one of my earlier guests, longtime friend, but also an earlier guest on, on Dairy Voice too. So here we are. Let's have you start by telling us you grew up on a dairy farm and uh, did the stuff that kids do growing up on a farm. Let's, let's start at the beginning. Like you said, every normal kid on a farm growing up, you know, helped mom feed calves when we were really young, things like that. It was me and my brother, um, two cousins from over the hill, two cousins from down the hill. And we were basically raised by like siblings running around this operation. And back then when I was young, it was, we grew from 200 to about 400 cows. By the time I went off to college, Cornell, that is, uh, we were right under 700 cows. The joke with Farm Credit East is that we were a construction company with a dairy farm because every time we decide to do an addition or an expansion, we'd just start pouring concrete and get out the bulldozer and go. I've never known a time when we weren't in some small phase of construction. It's so funny. Um, my dad is a agricultural engineer, I think you'd call him. And if he can see it in his head, he can build it on the ground. And that's just the mindset we were raised with. Going back to the nine generation thing, so that's on my mom's side of the family. Um, her family came over from Scotland and landed in Nova Scotia and made their way across the United States to end up daring in California and then somehow ended up back in Truxton, New York. <laughs> Truxton to Seneca Falls. Seneca Falls, mom went to Alfred where she met dad. And yeah, then you got me, unfortunately, number nine. And then I'm raising generation 10 here on the farm. I've got Daniel and Lockwood our two boys, um, my husband, Richard, I met kind of through Cornell in a way. Um, Cornell has this amazing exchange program with Lincoln University down in New Zealand. So I spent a semester abroad and I absolutely fell in love with the country, the people, the culture, the blatant appreciation for agriculture. You know, we're 2% of the population here 
they are a majority there and they're very well respected. It's known that when milk's making money, towns are going to flourish as downtowns are going to exist. And that just spoke volumes to me. So when I graduated, I basically packed my bags and went back as fast as I could. And in total, I spent seven years in New Zealand. I met Richard one night at a bar, as you do. And um, <laughs> about say six months later, we were engaged. A year later, we were married. And I have the most supportive husband in the world. He's, he grew up doing sheep and beef. So he has an agricultural appreciation. He did work on the farm with me for four years. But he's back doing what he loves. He does um, environmental impact planning and um, economic development planning as well. And so he works for a government entity and loves that long-range forecasting, and especially with the challenges that COVID is presenting to small business. So he is truly happy doing what he's doing, even though we're not quite in the country he longs to be in. Sounds like useful skills to have affiliated with a dairy farm too. Oh, absolutely. And then he's got a little thing on the side where he breeds cows every Thursday morning. So he's truly <laughs> useful. There you go. <laughs> Uh, well, let's talk a bit, uh, just a moment about New Zealand. You uh, obviously worked on a farm or several farms while you were there, I presume? Yes, definitely. So literally all seven years I was on a dairy somewhere, um, working up through the industry. You know, I was a migrant labor worker for the first year. And having that little bit of a role reversal was incredibly interesting and humbling and made me appreciate so much of what our guys go through here in the United States. Um, I worked my way up into management, and then we became lower order share milkers. So if you're not used to the term, basically you are handed the keys to the property, which is just fields, fences, and a dairy shed, which is a two-sided barn with your swing parlor. And sometimes the cows, sometimes not the cows. And you're told to run it for a year with very little oversight. Um, we were a loader, lower order share milker, so I got 22% of the milk check and the landowner took the rest. And however well you did is however well you did in your paycheck. So it was a huge challenge. We were you know, newlyweds. Daniel was born during that year that we were lower order share milking. It, it, so many interesting stressors happened, but it was wonderful. It was a really awesome growth opportunity for both of us. Let's um, say, and then we went to back to managing uh, because literally as milk prices shift in New Zealand, share milking positions come and go. Um, when it's a low milk price year, a landowner is better off share milking. If it's a high milk price year, you're better off having a manager on the property. So my farm was being, that we'd been on, was being consolidated with another property and I didn't get that bid for that job. So we took what we could find locally because at that point Richard was still working for a government entity doing his civic planning. So I took a managing position and that was a, another learning curve, you know, going, taking that step back was really hard. And I realized that I didn't want to take a step back again. And during that year, I got the phone call from Stein Farms home saying, Hey, you know, we're looking to expand one more time. We're looking to go from 700 to a thousand. We're not doing it without you are you ready to come home? So there was a lot of discussion that year. Lockwood was born that year. Um, and that in a funny way, um, you know, having two little boys 
I think that was for me, my emotional catalyst to come, you know, it was, it was challenging, you know, career-wise to be mom and farmer, you know, Daniel was born. I had six weeks off and then I was right back to work. And that's not the New Zealand standard. They do paid maternity leave of 14 weeks, but for my career, I just couldn't do it. So no, coming home was, was difficult. It was interesting. My poor husband landed into America for about the fourth time and we got 18 inches of snow. It was March of 2014 and he's like, what just happened? I'm like, oh, it's March. Welcome. <laughs> Not so much snow in New Zealand, I expected. <laughs> no, he's, so Richard lived and we lived in Amaru, which is south of Christchurch. You're on the South Island, very yep. coastal, very temperate climate. You know, you would hit the 35 for your low on a winter's day, but you'd see 40 every day. I mean, you had measurable grass growth all year long. So, I mean, so different from what I'm looking out the window at at the moment. Today, consumers crave more than high quality dairy products. They also have expectations on animal care. I'm Jeff Rosie, technical director for AHV. We are an innovative animal health company developing products based on the science of quorum sensing. Our cutting edge portfolio ranges from calf health to udder health and have helped dairies around the globe reduce their reliance on antibiotics. Learn more about us at ahvint.com and find AHV USA on Facebook and LinkedIn. Let's, let's uh, move to Leroy. You've come home uh, with your family, your young family and your husband. You're now part of the team uh, at Stein Farms. What, what's going on now? 2014, 2015, we grew to a thousand cows. Again, construction operation in our heads. We literally got the bulldozers out and off we went again. So in between our covered manure lagoon and our dry cow barn, there was enough space to put in a four row barn that would hold 340 cows. So we did it. We were called crazy, but we did it. Um, set the poles professionally by an outside company and then we just did the rest. So on top of every other normal part of farming, we built this massive barn. Um, I had a, there was a herd manager in place who was, getting closer to retirement age. And in the middle of preg check one morning, he goes, he looks me square in the eye and goes, Tasha, I can't see out of my left eye. And I'm like, Bob, what are you talking about? He's like, Tasha, it's like, there's a black and white TV screen on the wrong channel. And we both just kind of had this panic attack and I drove him home. We'll come to find out his retina detached. So that was a very swift and sudden end to his career because he's, you know, blindsided now. And, you know, my role went from, you know, he and I coexisting and kind of figuring each other out to very much taking a lead role overnight in the herd. Uh, it, it took some time. It took some softening of the edges, I think my uncle very kindly called it. <laughs> um, you know, I got there in the end. And remembering back to my time in New Zealand, you know, being, you know, just a milker really brought it back to home for me often. You know, I'd get home at night and I'd be like, oh, why didn't they do X, Y, and Z? And I'd get all flustered. And, and then, you know, I remember back to those times, like they're exhausted. They've done so much. And then they go home and they're, they're It's just not home. Took some time, got my feet under me. And, and there we were, um, literally grew a thousand cows internally, just, you know, sex semen through everybody in about 18 months. That was a wild ride. Holy Hannah, calvings, calvings everywhere. 
And now we're a very steady thousand cows. We're definitely not a herd that's going to milk our way out of a problem. You know, that seems to be a constant here in America. Hey, we got debt. Let's put on some more cows. Hey, milk price is going up. Let's put on some more cows. And that is so not our approach. You know, we're, we're looking to fine tune the herd. We're looking to make higher solids. We're looking to enhance what we've got. Smart, not just slap on another barn because it's a fast way out. I think, you know, we as an industry have got to come to terms with the fact that you can't milk your way out of everything. <laughs> well said. Today, talk about your role is, is uh, cow care in charge of the herd and talk about your other family members and what, what they do on the, on the dairy. Okay. Um, so my dad, Ray Stein, is still very much in the business, probably doing more hours in a week than I ever will. Um, he is our engineer, our brainstormer, our big thinker. I watched a, a video recently where a friend, Mark Murray up at Murcrest, was talking about his grandfather was the driver for the expansion. And I can echo that with my father. He is, you know, the one to get big, big dream ideas and make them a reality. That's Ray's position. Nathan is my cousin, Nathan Stein. He is nutrients in, nutrients out, uh, feed bunk management, feed management, buying of commodities, keeping track of our contracts for soy and corn and cottonseed when you can afford it. Um, and manure out, you know, making sure logs are in tractors, making sure that manure is getting onto the right fields, making sure that manure applications going on correctly. We're all about trying something new. So in the last 18 months, we've gone to drag lining all of our manure, having it done custom for the moment. And we've got enough components in place because we were already doing some irrigation that we believe in another, you know, six to 10 months, we can go ahead and start drag lining ourselves. I mean, it's amazing the sheer volume of manure you can move in three days. And it would have taken us 20 to 25. Blows your mind to watch. And has um, advantages, has advantages of for the environment and the, and the neighborhood as well, too, I presume. Oh, exactly. And, and really, you know, that's one of my most recent roles is, you know, neighbor relations and knowing that, hey, we're going to be hauling manure for 25 days straight. People, you know, just about want to pull their hair out. And I can say, hey, by the way, manure is done. And they're like, how? You know, and that stunned silence of really? It's, it's such a gift that, you know, we can give ourselves, but we can give peace of mind to the people around us. You know, we don't need to impact people's worlds tremendously if we don't need to. So it's, it's been a really neat technology to incorporate. Hang on, I missed a family member. So we've got my brother, Jared, um, two years younger, but about a foot taller than me. He is our lead mechanic. He's that guy, when we were kids, Legos, you know, he could see it in his head and build it twice as fast as the instruction book said. And he now does that with everything mechanical on the property, you know, tears apart 18 wheelers in winter and puts them back together. Our fleet of 10 wheelers are all straight out of the 60s and 70s, but he knows every engine inside and out and the way his mind works just, I find so interesting. Between the three of us cousins, I've got two children, two boys. My brother has a boy and then my cousin Nathan has two boys and already you can see these little gears working as to who's interested in what. It's so funny. Maddie, Nathan's youngest, is all about the cows. 
and he can tell you where his girl Milky is and what pen she's in right now, and he's not quite four. And then you've got Lockwood, he's my cow kid. Daniel's going to be an engineer, you can see it today. It's so interesting watching the things that fascinated us as children just manifest all over again. It's, it's a wild thing to watch. And lots of fun too, it sounds like. Oh my gosh, having these five little little people roaming around. I mean, they don't roam around like we used to. We're too big now. You know, there's too many staff. When I was a kid, there was about four staff members. And you know, now there's 18 of us total. And that's a lot of moving parts and pieces. So it's not quite the freedom I remember, but I mean, we still get them there as often as we can. That is for absolute sure. Well, that's great. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about how you do manage your herd for uh, efficiency and, and set your goals for solids and the like. Uh, on your Facebook messaging, I saw some references to the technologies that you use. Uh, just, just tell us a little bit about that. I've got a bunch of different things going on at the moment. I mean, like most people in the industry, you know, it's either sex or beef. I either want you or I don't for our breeding kind of style. We take that almost a step further. I've gone and I found that I've missed all the fun colored breeds I had in New Zealand. You know, you had these huge, crazy multicolored herds. I mean, I'm not going to go back to the Kiwi cross that tops out at about 47 pounds of milk, but um, we've found some Fleck V's that are breeding black, breeding back beautifully. Uh, we've really struggled actually with the Jerstein combo. I cannot get them to breed back as well as I would have liked. Um, grabbed a couple of interesting Ayrshire bulls out of New Zealand as well, trying just something a little different. And it was very interesting how the components changed really within six months of those crosses coming on the herd. We're also very, very meticulous about all of our forages going into the bunk more than probably we ever were. And that change and that, you know, 60% forage diet, 57%, 60, whatever, is truly also driving butter fat in a way that you, you know, you wouldn't have thought it would. You know, people talk about high forage gives you fat in the tank and all that, but holy crow, you know, when you were running a 4-2 butter fat, it was just, you know, a wild day. You're like, really? We did that on Holsteins? <laughs> it was, it was pretty cool. Um, and then going back to just the Holstein breed that we use, I'm only picking a two bulls. I think most people are nowadays. Um, but the other thing is, is it's only a positive percent fat and percent protein. You know, I can forgive a lot of other bits and pieces on a bull, but if it's a negative percent fat or percent protein that I'm going to be gaining through, what's the point? We're not in a fluid market in this country anymore. It is a cheese market. And we all need to, again, come to terms with, you know, the changes from our parents and our grandparents days. We need to be creating something a processor actually wants to use and can use efficiently. And that's kind of my take on breeding where we're at. Um, you know, we're a double obstinc farm. We are, I have a voluntary waiting period of 80 days. Let's get them well and truly past calving. Let's get them well and truly, you know, almost up and over the peak before we even look at repro. Um, as someone who basically had Irish twins myself, it is really hard to breed back for a woman. So why the heck do we think we're gonna make a cow do it any faster? Let's be honest with ourselves, right? I'll defer to um, your experience in that regard. <laughs> <laughs> I, and then let's talk about technologies out there. So, so in regards to, to new technologies, going to Cow Health, we were contacted by Soma Detect. They recently, well, not recently, two and a half years ago, moved into Buffalo, New York out of Canada. 
They are a dairy technology that's using lasers and light spectrometry to tell you cow health based on her milk. The thing about it that I love the most is there is no impact on milk flow. It is a completely pass through 90% of your milk through the back of the unit, 10% of the milk through the front of your unit. So that's what they're imaging on. It's just that little 10%. And there's no slugs. There's no gaps. There's no impact on milk flow into your milk line. So that way you're not creating teat end damage. And when I see all these milk meters with these 90 degree bends and these needs to slug and fill little tanks and then empty tanks to get volume, there's none of that involved in their system. It is all literally lights and light readers and cameras as it's passing. So as things are passing, they're able to detect the speed and rate and volume of particulates. So you're getting an estimated volume. As particulates are passing, you're getting fat and protein percentages. They're able to identify it markers for pregnancy. They're able to identify markers for ovulation. Using the algorithm up in the cloud, which I guess we're all becoming very used to talking about those things nowadays, um, they can do some reverse numbers, you know, and give me a heads up when someone's ketotic or acidotic. I'm loving where we're headed. You know, it's very cow focused, but cow health focused. The founder, Bethany Depeche, has been really a neat person to get to know. It, she grew up in a biomedical household. This was a tech her dad created, and she's taking it the next step and launching. And I've just really enjoyed watching this team develop and grow and figuring out how to make it commercially viable. You know, so being a research and development farm is not new to us at Stein Farms. My father, Ray, for literally 27 years had a steel fabrication business. Anything you see steel on the farm, he thought it up and made it. Our headlocks, our freestyle loops, our rapid exit gates in our parlor. So being research and development is not new to us. The technology side of it takes longer than something you just fabricate, but that's probably the, the curve we're struggling a little with. But watching this grow, watching this come has been really, really awesome. Sounds like a great experience. And I've just uh, seen a news release from them that they've got some new funding too. So I expect they'll be expanding on their road to commercial reality. Yeah, their Series A funding just came through. They received over $6 million. I know for a fact they're in, they've got staff in Colorado at the moment on a larger herd than us working to do an install and get their metrics up and running. And I know that there's a farm in Minnesota somewhere that's involved. So really neat to sit back and watch this team develop and go. Oh, yeah, we're really kind of rooting for them. And then another startup that actually kind of DFA put us in touch with because they found out we were with Selma Detect was um, Healthy Cow. They're based out of Canada, but the other way you can pronounce th their name is Heal Thy Cow. And these are, these are two completely different guys from two totally different worlds. You've got Dr. Edward Robb, the creator of Exceed, XNL, and I'm missing somebody, but what, that form of drug who has flipped quote unquote to the other side and is now doing preventative care. And then you've got this really neat guy up in Toronto who watched what happened in China with the melamine that was being put in milk and how infants were dying and you know that whole awful scenario 
of, you know, how can we prevent this stuff from even happening? How can you prevent antibiotics and really high somatic cell milk from ever getting into the market or even into a factory? And these two guys literally kind of randomly connected at a dairy conference and boom, they've started a business together, Heal Thy Cow. So it is a probiotic for cows. Guess what? Rumens destroy probiotics. It doesn't work that way. So it has to be inserted vaginally. It's like a cock gun. Um, we've come up with some very lewd comments around the farm as to what we're going to call it. Um, it's yeah. none of it tests well. <laughs> <laughs> but at the end of the day, it is so neat and revolutionary. Who amongst us humans hasn't taken a probiotic at some point, right? So the whole idea is it's for the transition cow. Two treatments before she calves, two treatments after she calves. Um, it sounds maybe a little bit invasive, but at the same point, it is the simplest thing on earth to just run down through and flip a tail, wipe her clean, pop it in and go. Even my vet said, you know, I'll eat my hat. I didn't think this was going to do anything. And hair coats gleamed on fresh cows. You know, intakes were up across that whole pen. We did, you know, treatments and non-treatment animals for almost six months. And the difference in milk volumes was registrable. It was really, really exciting to see. So we wish, again, all the best of luck to those guys as they ramp up into a formal United States rollout. It sounds very intriguing for sure. You obviously are concerned about consumers. You speak in a language that consumers can certainly understand and relate to. I've got a couple of questions for you. Where do you ship your milk? Are you involved in that decision directly or are other family members uh, deal with, with your milk marketing activities? And then uh, after we talk about that, give us a little bit of insight into your dairy promotion work. So we're a DFA farm. Um, kind of have no say where we end up, but I can tell you we end up at Sorrento up in Buffalo quite often. Mm -hmm. So a shredded mozzarella line. Every once in a while, we end up in the new Hood factory here in Batavia, New York, which is nice to see it going local. Milk processing has got to move to where the dairy is, and Western New York is where it's happening. There's a possibility, a rumor, a, a known that Great Lakes cheese is expanding. So that's a really exciting possibility of, you know, a huge source or a huge vet that we can fill as an industry and absorb some of this excess that we've got happening up here in Western New York. Yeah, they're Ohio based, I think, but they've got a plant in Adams, uh, Adams Center, New York, that has been a real boon to the Jefferson County, St. Lawrence County, Lewis County region uh, in terms of milk volumes. Absolutely. No, especially when COVID hit and you know, we're a DFA farm in the Northeast, which means we had an instant 85% re, or we were allowed to ship up to 85% of our volume from 2019. Anything over that was penalized. It is not an ideal situation. I still to this day argue it is not a fair situation. You know, there was a small group of us farmers that would, that had approached DFA for over a year begging for a base program, at least establish a base, you know, a base access program is where we'd like to head to, but just get us a number, yep. you know, let's, let's roll in that direction. They were DFA in other regions had already had a base access program in place. And the Northeast was very hesitant and very standoffish. 
And now we are where we are. And I kick myself that we didn't scream louder and harder. You know, I, I, again, I'm still incredibly active on the farm, but there are days I wish I could free myself up and I could have run for a board seat because I look at where we're at and I think of how fixable some of this was ahead of time. I uh, heard a producer say not too long ago that he, he feels frustrated that uh, dairy producers have done such a good job making milk efficiently, healthy milk efficiently, and he wishes kind of the rest of the food chain could catch up with it. And it sounds like you're uh, thinking along those same lines. Oh, that, I, think that, I think he read my mind. <laughs> we, we've, we've got this figured out. The science behind us as to you know, how to improve and where to go next is ever coming at us. And yeah, there are so many more industries that need to catch up. You know, it's amazing where, where we've come to. Um, I'll go back to the DFA thing. So we're now, up, we're now allowed to ship up to 87% of our milk before we're penalized. And the, the, the dollar value has changed from at one point being a $10 deduction to a $6 deduction to recently a buck 28 deduction. You know, where does it make financial sense to sit at? Where, where do we need to bounce to? And one of the strengths of Stein Farms is definitely we love numbers, we love figures. So we had milk production uh, you know, versus um, we had all sorts of numbers for like the last 15 years that we could sit there and really look at and go, okay, where's our cost of production? Where do we sit? Where can we, you know, truly screw something down and say, we can do X at Y and we can make milk at this point efficiently year over year. And at 87%, you know, of our production, you know, where, where do we cut ourselves back? So that we're not just throwing away dollars, you know, good behind bad. Sure. So it's been a real mental challenge. It's, it's restarted our partner meetings. We dropped those years ago. We kind of just, you know, talked about things as we were flying past each other. And now there's a monthly partners meeting. I think it is one of the strongest components of what we do. And I'm so grateful that it's kind of been reinstated. Do you ever invite some of your key advisors uh, to join you for that meeting or is it uh, the family and the, uh, your family ownership that gets together? Oh, absolutely. No. Um, Randy Rishkin with Farm Credit East is our financial consultant and he's there quarterly and our nutritionist has probably popped in twice in the last six months. And I think we need to make him a regular feature, you know, every, every quarter as well, maybe get, because Don Burkhart with Cows Come First, he's not just, our nutritionist. He's a bit of a consultant, a former dairy farmer himself, a bit of a, a mentor for me, to be honest. Um, I, those, those two guys, I truly value their opinions and their breadth of knowledge that they bring to us looking at other farms. You know, we, we get in our own holes, we get in our own inside of our own head spaces, and maybe we don't always take into account what's going on around us. Those two bring it right back, you know, and say, hey, what about X? And it's fantastic. Well, that's great. Glad it's working well. Um, Definitely. As we uh, kind of wind up our conversation here, just give me a feel for the any sort of dairy promotion involvement that you've had and, and what your take on that is these days. Dairy farmers have got to sing their story from the rooftops and we hate doing it. I get it. I get it. I get exhausted at night. I just want to go home, hang with my kids. Honest to God, de-stress with a little knitting, which sounds super dorky but we've got to be willing to put ourselves out there because otherwise 
Oatly and all these other ones are going to tell our stories for us. And it puts us in such a bad light. It's not funny. Um, I've done milk in school day down in inner city Rochester schools. Um, I've done fuel up to play 60 up in Roch or up in Buffalo. I'm sorry with the Buffalo bills. I got to hang out with Thurman Thomas for a day and being a kid from the nineties. Oh my God. Was that cool? Um, <laughs> like, you know, I volunteer at the birthing center at the New York state fair. And I have had such debates with fellow farmers about where that stands. I think Eileen Jensen and her team do the most amazing job and share some of the best moments that we get to cherish every day with the world. And I've had, you know, some real pushback from people saying, no, no, no. Like, you know, it's a very private moment for a cow. It's very stressful to the cows. I'm like, yeah, we understand it's, there's some stress there, but the good it does far outweighs that. Absolutely far outweighs that. I, I walk up to people and I, and I, my phrase is, Hey, can I be your farmer today? <laughs> and I, I, I just love the conversations you can generate. I had three women from New York city for probably two hours straight talking, talking, talking. I mean, the silliest of conversations of that. You mean placentas are different between different types of mammals. You know, like you'll never know where the conversation is going to go if you're not willing to have it. And we've got to be willing to have them promotions and, and relations and, and getting who we are and how we're literally making milk better every single day for you needs to get out there. Well, I can only imagine what an articulate and enthusiastic uh, conversationalist you are when that happens. <laughs> Thank you. That's it. And then the one more piece that we just all need to remember is that there are so few of us in ag anymore. So therefore there's so few of us advocating, you know, and, and not just to the lay people in our neighborhoods or, or, you know, consumers, but specifically to our legislators out there and our representatives, we have got to embrace Farm Bureau or who or NEDPA or whatever is in your region to make sure that we get heard. Otherwise, we get screwed. New York State right now still will not officially recognize agricultural workers as vital employees in need of COVID vaccinations. Yes, they just opened up to anyone over 30 which includes most of my workforce, but that New York state, specifically Cuomo, refused to acknowledge that literally ag workforce is not an essential worker and therefore in need of a COVID vaccination, floored me. Absolutely floored me. I'd like to see that man grow all of everything he needs in downtown Albany. Well, he's got some other distractions, I think, before he gets into oh. farming in Albany. Yes, he's got a lot of <laughs> things going on at the moment, but I mean, and, you know, to, to be yes, we, ignored in such a way, yep. you know, ugh, this is the whole argument that we need to speak up because no one's going to speak up for us. Well, it sounds like you were holding up your end very nicely. <laughs> Thank you very much, Joel. Well, Natasha Stein, really appreciate you. Uh, Natasha Stein Sutherland, pardon me, to your, to your husband and you. He'll uh, appreciate that. Thank re you. Really appreciate you uh, taking some time to talk with us today. And uh, it's been fun. Very glad to get acquainted. And uh, I will thank Janice Barrett for her excellent recommendation. She was right on target. Thank you so much for letting me come on the show today. And I hope that someone took a nugget out of something I said. Well, there's a lot there to, uh, to chew on. So I'm sure we'll, this will be a very popular episode. Oh, thank you. You have a great day, Joel. Thank you. And uh, we thank Natasha Sutherland from Leroy, New York, Stein Farms. 
we ask our listeners to give Dairy Voice a great rating on your podcast app and how you cannot after this episode, I don't know. But until next time, I'm your host, Joel Hastings, signing off for dairybusiness.com.